Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussion Podcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to sit in front of you today. And to have this conversation, today I want to talk about a new paradigm, one that I've been using for some time, and and some may take this episode as being critical, but I'm actually offering a framework that I think works really well knowing all the data, knowing all the, the problems and messiness and complexities and contradictions, all of it just laying there on a table. But before we get to that framework, we have to understand the problem. And and the problem, again, goes back, we've said it a lot of times in repeating Richard Bushman, but Richard Bushman says the dominant narrative is not true. It cannot sustain itself. Patrick Mason says that leaders have done no service by overloading the truth cart. And, and what's in that truth cart is falling out and it's rotten. And so what we have to understand maybe is the potential way of seeing what the church's responsibility is, understanding that it is overstepped, overreached, and underreached on a lot of issues, and to grant some charity for that fallibility, and then to create a a new paradigm that allows you to comfortably deal with all that. And so the problem is that the church has essentially never defined itself in a way that held and stuck together. And so when you look at essentially every historical facet, polygamy, Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon, uh, having an honest conversation about Joseph Smith's treasure digging, uh, the the polyandry and age of the wives and the fact that they didn't have Emma's, uh, Emma wasn't even aware of most of these relationships happening. The idea of the first vision and the fact that we've thrown out this 1838 account without leaving any space to validate and own up to this 1832 account. The book of Abraham supposedly coming from this papyrus and what we've imposed about that, uh, little issues like birth control. And I don't mean little issues in terms of that issue as a little issue, but in terms of affecting the truth claims of the church, little issues like birth control and um, cremation and other ways in which we live our lives that in prior handbooks would have been very spelled out, and today there's much more room and flexibility granted. When you look at uh, issues like uh, Wilford Woodruff and the ending of polygamy, Brigham Young teaching Adam God, the church teaching that 
those of color were less valiant. And we could go on, right? Like if we actually sat down and just said, look, my goal is to sit down today and write down every issue in the church that the church has stated a position on and then moved from that position or every issue that the church has claimed to not know the position that God holds on that issue. So to realize like how much is up for grabs and, and what you realize very quickly if you make that list is you would write down hundreds if not maybe thousands of things that the church has said, look, here's the way it is. And then 25 years later said, no, 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 that that wasn't accurate. Here's the way it is. Or says like, we don't have an answer on that. We just don't know that. And, And once you get it, you realize like we've shifted on 10 times more things than we've not shifted on. That we've changed our position on 10 times more things than we've not changed our position on, right? And so then you look at LDS leaders and you look at uh, President Kimball, um, the miracle of forgiveness. And I've got a little bit of a cold, so I'm sorry if my voice is off just a touch. The miracle of forgiveness, right? President Kimball, and he's got this idea of, you know, what leads to homosexuality. And he teaches other ideas in that book that aren't true. I mean, let's just be honest. They're not true. They're false. And when you teach an idea and you are a prophet, seer, and revelator, when you teach an idea, generally, implicitly, you've left room for people to assume you're speaking for God and to not really know when you're not. And then you take guys who even have done that even more, right? Take Bruce R. McConkie or Joseph Fielding Smith and open up their books and read their works read the things they've written. And those guys, I mean, if you take Mormon doctrine, I would almost guess that 80% of what Elder Bruce R. McConkie defined and interpreted is not an official position of the church, but he imposed his ideas as if they were. So here's a prophet, right? This man has keys. This man supposedly has contact with Jesus on some level, that he's able to receive answers that he knows are answers and they came from God. And yet, somewhere in the range of like 80% of what he said, today we could have a conversation and either demonstrably show what he taught was false or make the argument that the church would not hold that position today with any level of certitude. And, And so you have this man who claims to speak for God who overreaches and underreaches on almost everything he says. And yet, for some reason, we as members of the church look at the church and look to the church for it to define for us how we are to live our lives or what we are to believe, and and most especially that, what we are to believe, right? Like, here's the history of our church, and these are how these events unfolded, And this is the narrative that is true. And even when you look at these LDS essays that are supposed to be more transparent and more open and more accurate, and you realize like if you were allowed to ask questions to the church leaders at a, at a sitting at a table and to push them on this data, like they couldn't hold this ground. They couldn't hold this ground 
with confidence and defend it using facts. Like we know the essays are whitewashed. And even just to take us a, a, what would seem like a mundane one, like the cessation of polygamy in the manifesto, and to have a conversation about the messiness that's going on as the church is trying to step away from polygamy, the essay makes it sound like Wilford Woodruff receives this manifesto in 1890, and the church just takes some time to get out of polygamy. But when you step into the historical context of that moment, Wilford Woodruff has no desire, nor does he want to impose, nor does he hope to impose any kind of end to polygamy. That 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 event in our history was to appease the government. Meanwhile, Wilford Woodruff and others sent church members to Mexico and to Canada to keep the principle going so that they could return to it soon as they could get the government comfortable with it. And the essay doesn't paint that picture. The essay turns the story on its head, and it's an indefensible position once you take into the historical context. And so people will come up to me all the time and say, Bill, like, how do you navigate Mormonism when the church is over here telling you that it has to be done this way? And and my response is this framework, which is, I don't care how the church defines itself. I don't care how the church defines its history because the church has never gotten that right. The church has never been able to define itself and hold to it. The church has never been able to interpret God's word and hold to it. So what I mean by that is this, that when we look at what God says, God says that, look, this is my true church and my leaders my servants, who are the leaders of the church, their responsibility when I speak to them, their responsibility is to then convey that message to you. And what we have to figure out in Mormonism is what is God actually saying? And so if I step away from everything leaders say, where they don't say God is actually speaking, like I'm stepping away from 99.8% of Mormonism. And so if I just take all of that and just set it off to the side for a moment, just set it right next to me, put it over there and it's over there. I can see it, but I don't hold that as binding. What is binding as God's word? God's word is the DNC, the book of Mormon, the, the old Testament, new Testament, pearl of great price, but even with those, I can take everything in those works that prophets are talking and saying things and teaching things, but they haven't told me that that's actually God who said it. And I can take all of that and set it off to the side. So when, when a Nephite prophet says that God cursed the Lamanites and made them a dark skin, I can brush that off. Because that person hasn't said, God has said, here's the revelation. Rather, that Nephite prophet has perceived something happening and is trying to explain it. But he's never given me what God has said. So what I hold as what the church's responsibility is to give me that I'm responsible to then take is when the church gives me God actually talking, right? And I get it, right? How do we know when God's actually talking? We don't. 
but can you at least work with me here and say, all right, look, I'm going to accept when the church imposes that this is God talking. And when I do that, when I go back to what does God actually say? So for instance, um, word of wisdom, church leaders tell us that we are not to partake of alcohol, right? But if I said, dear church leaders, section 89 tells us that we are to drink mild drinks of barley, which there is no if, ands, or buts. In historical context, no if, ands, or buts, that's beer. And no, I'm not telling members to go out and drink beer. I'm trying to teach an idea here. But if I were to ask church leaders, oh, great. So the Lord told us to drink beer. We raised our hands in common consent to accept section 89 as canon, as scripture, and as binding on us as a Latter-day Saint community. And that section tells me to drink beer. And now you years later have told me not to drink beer. So would you please give me a revelation from God that shows me that, that God has asked you to change his word? And would you please show me where I've accepted that change that came through a revelation that you haven't shown me yet? Show me where I've accepted that by common consent, and hence it is binding on me as a Latter-day Saint. And the church can't. It can't. And so if we want to have this conversation, they would have to explain to me if I chose to drink beer, which I don't. But if if I did, they would have to explain to me why not drinking beer is binding while the actual revelation from God accepted by common consent teaches the opposite. Do you see what I mean? So if we can just go back to where God is speaking through his prophet to us, then let's let's hold what we see as the word of God to that. And I'm not saying there aren't other inspired things. I'm not saying there aren't other godly messages. For instance, when people get up in general conference as leaders of the church and speak, we are hopeful that they are under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that they teach truth, and that we sense that communication from God to them, to us, and we'd make changes in our life to be better. But that's very different. That's a very different thing from what has God said that's canonized, that we've raised our hand in common consent, and is binding on us as a community. Like, what are the rules that I am bound to follow to be a Latter-day Saint? And so you, you see that the church has overreached on lots of theological ideas, on lots of behavioral requirements, and, and if you can just set all that aside and go back to where God is actually talking, right? So if Joseph Smith says, look, God is talking to me, and now I'm going to tell you what God said, and I'm going to put it in God's own words. Joseph, my son, hear me on this great principle, and God unfolds it. Like, let's hold God to that. Because if you haven't raised your hand in common consent, if there is no revelation, then how am I to actually have that be binding on me and me be required to follow it? That makes no sense. So take another in, for another uh, another example. Elder Bednar taught five, six, seven years ago at this point. I don't remember. 
but he testified that Jesus was born on April 6th in the year zero. But more than that, because that, you know, maybe he knows something the rest of us don't. He also testified that we as Latter-day Saints know that Jesus was born on April 6th. And that misnomer has continued through our history in spite of the fact that the one verse of the DNC regarding the organization of the church on April 6th of 1830, the introductory verse to that section was written by John Whitmer without any revelation and was meant simply as a introductory verse designed to announce the date that the revelation was received on in the common language of 1830 years after the coming of our Lord. It was not a declaration of the birth of Jesus. So if I had Elder Bednar in front of me, I would say, Elder Bednar, you claimed that we as Latter-day Saints, as a people, know that Jesus was born on April 6th. Could you please point me to where that revelation was received? And if he pointed me to section 20, I would then inform him of the historical context and that there's no revelation there to draw that information from. He then might point me to two or three church leaders who have repeated and reiterated and perpetuated that teaching. I would then point to those leaders and the historical context that shows that they are also drawing from section 20 and not from any personal revelation. When Elder Bednar says, we know, he is claiming that there is some official record from God declaring such. And if I asked him for such, it would be unable to be provided because it doesn't exist. And so Elder Bednar has overreached and overstated what the data gives us in terms of when Jesus was born. And I'm making the argument that that has happened on 99.5% of Mormonism, that all too often we overreach or sometimes we underreach. For instance, the 1886 revelation by John Taylor that is not canonized. John Taylor says Jesus came to him and says to him in the very first person of the voice of Jesus Christ, that polygamy is to never be taken off the earth, no matter what kind of pressure builds from the government. And that revelation has never been canonized. Now, sure as heck, I don't want to go back to polygamy, but at least we should have the church address the fact that the last time on the church's public record of Jesus speaking directly to one of his prophets and giving him a revelation is a revelation that we've never chosen to canonize, we've not only dismissed, but we've completely ignored. And so when it comes to the church, I want to entrust it to give me the word of God. But the word of God is so rare, so intermittent, so irregular, so sporadic, so hit and miss, and our leaders are continually talking and saying things and teaching and addressing us. And so we have to give them space that for every 500 things they teach, one of those is an actual rigid declaration 
from God to us, meant for all of Latter-day Saints to adopt as a guideline in their life, and more than that, a binding, canonized Word of God that we will all be held accountable to in terms of whether we're Mormon or not. And I welcome, if anybody wants to have this conversation with me, I welcome this back and forth about what is the Word of God, what is binding on a Latter-day Saint, and when is a prophet speaking as a prophet. And I think the historical context makes absolutely valid that the best approach here is to recognize that much of what we say as an institution is not binding, is not God's direct word. And we're going to have to grow comfortable with that. But more than that, it gives us the space when we understand this idea to recreate a Mormonism that we actually can survive in in the midst of all of this mess. So I don't trust the church to interpret God's word. I don't trust the church to know when it's gotten God's word and when it hasn't. Because I think often when God is not speaking in the first person and the church just says, this is what we're going to do. Here's the idea. Here's my interpretation. Here's how I put this together. The church is almost always wrong when it does that. So if, again, we can set everything the leaders have interpreted of God's word aside, everything the leaders have speculated about God's word aside, if we take everything Elder McConkie says without any actual revelation to draw from that specifically states the thing that Elder McConkie is stating, we throw all that off to the side, 99% of what Elder McConkie said just vanishes. And the 1% we're left with, there you go, God's word. So when I, when I hold myself accountable to the word of God, what I do is I look at the DNC, I look at the Book of Mormon when, when specific doctrine is being taught, I, I hold to the New Testament when Jesus speaks, I hold to the Old Testament, but only when these Old Testament prophets are teaching the very word of God. And again, I grant this all gets messy too, right? Because there's even things there that the church would be like, yeah, we're not going to hold to that. And, and we wouldn't want to hold to that. So I'm not saying this is like perfect, clean cut. But once you strip away all the obvious nonsense and you strip away all of the teachings that are not based on the direct first person word of God. And again, I'm not saying you throw those away. I'm saying like you leave room in your brain to say like, yeah, that may be true. It may not. I'm going to have to judge that a different way. Then I look at what God has actually said, and I'm pretty comfortable with when God speaks directly in the restoration. I'm pretty comfortable with what God says in the book of Abraham when it's God specifically talking in the first person. I'm really comfortable with what God says in the book of Mormon when it's God speaking directly or when the Nephite and Lamanite prophets are teaching pure doctrine. Not when they're speculating, not when they're offering their own interpretation, not when they're imposing their cultural views as truth, 
But when they claim to be speaking for God and they're telling us what God is telling them in a more direct way, I'm really comfortable with that. Now, there are two exceptions. One is section 132. I don't know what to do with it, but I'm not comfortable with chunks of section 132. And so I, st- I want to still leave room to, to dismiss in some way something that runs counter. But luckily, luckily with 132, I live in a day when polygamy has been walked away from in mortality so that I don't need to vow or prove my loyalty to the church by my acceptance of that practice in mortality because it's no longer a doctrine of the church in mortality. It has been done away. Will it come back? Will it not? I would almost bet my entire life, home, savings, everything that it will never come back. The church would never go back to that. But I don't need to worry about that in the here and now. It's not here. And I please understand, I I realize that polygamy is still part of the LDS church and that many still carry the trauma of it and that it's still doing damage to Latter-day Saints today. I'm simply saying that the church cannot punish me for saying I'm not comfortable with polygamy and mortality because the church isn't asking me to practice polygamy and mortality. So I can walk away from that. The other exception is when Elder Nelson said that the policy of the children of uh, gay parents cannot receive ordinances of the church, that that was a revelation by Thomas Monson. But here's the caveat there. Number one, I know that not all the general authorities, not all of the 12 were in town for that event. And so when Elder Nelson says, we felt good about it, we, you know, we've received, you know, the, the, the word of the, the world Lord through the prophet, there's, there's two issues. One is that not all the apostles are there. And when some of them get back, they're not too happy. Number two is that what right does Elder Nelson have to declare Thomas Monson's revelations, right? Like the prophet of the church is responsible to stand up to the people and say, I've received a revelation. Thus saith the Lord, here it is. If we as Latter-day Saints are to see it as revelation and for it to be binding on us as a people, it must be accepted by common consent and declared by the prophet of the Lord. You can't have the president of the church receiving a revelation behind closed doors And then other people besides the president going out and declaring that word. Like at some point, the prophet has to speak that he's received a revelation, which may at least in part be why the John Taylor 1886 revelation never becomes anything more than just a a dismissed document laying on President Taylor's desk when he passes away. It wasn't fair that John W. Taylor, his son who's an apostle, take that document and run around saying, my father received a revelation. This is true. We must accept it. That wouldn't be appropriate. Why? Because it is the prophet's responsibility to declare the word of God. And if the prophet isn't telling the people, it is the word of God. 
and it's not being accepted by common consent, and it's not being put into our canon, it's not binding on the people. Again, it doesn't mean it's not a revelation. It doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't mean that uh, Latter-day Saints shouldn't be encouraged to get some inspiration from it and to make necessary changes that each Latter-day Saint feels they need to make. What it means is it's not binding on the people. So when you look at Mormonism, if you can dismiss all the overreaching, underreaching, private interpretation, speculation, all of that, you're left with such a smaller pool to drink from, and it becomes much more tolerable. And so why? Why would we trust LDS leaders to interpret the Word of God when LDS leaders have shown us the inability to be accurate when they interpret the Word of God? Why would we trust the LDS Church to interpret its history when the LDS Church has shown it is incapable of accurately interpreting its history? Why would we trust LDS leaders to give us answers to questions that we don't have the first-person Word of God on when LDS leaders have shown an inability to interpret questions and answers and teachings that we don't have the first-person voice of God on. And the fact that we keep going back to the church saying, please tell me how to interpret this, when it's demonstrably shown it has an inability to do that, bewilders me. So what is the role of the church? The role of the church is this. When God speaks to his prophet with the intention that what he's saying is to be given to the entire church or is to be given to the entire world, that prophet is then responsible to then tell the church and tell the world exactly what God said to the best of his ability. Where possible, that prophet is responsible to, with within that revelation occurring or soon after, to get that revelation out so as to maintain as much accuracy as possible and to not let memory and other factors distort the word of God. So when the Lord spoke to Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith was responsible to then dictate the word of God to his scribe, to write it down himself, to announce it to the people, so as to get the message out as clearly as possible. And if God imposed to Joseph that something had been distorted or that Joseph got further light and knowledge from God, Joseph then was responsible to go back to those commandments, back to those teachings, and to edit them and correct them. When the word of God is presented to the people in order for it to be binding on them, the church is required to ask for a vote of common consent. Once we as a church raise our hand in unity, in common consent of that teaching, it becomes binding on the Latter-day Saints. When it becomes binding, it is what we as a people shall be judged by. Otherwise, it is up to each individual to have agency within their life to determine how they're going to live the gospel of Jesus Christ and any any underreaching or overreaching 
which can still be by inspiration and be perfectly allowed by that individual, but is beyond what is canonized and accepted by common consent, is up to the individual. And and I don't, and again, I know I'm on, I know I'm on ground that's going to make LDS leaders really uncomfortable. But I think if any LDS leader sits back and says like, how, what has the church established as the way that something is binding on the Latter-day Saints as a community? And I think the church, if it's, if it's going to answer that question, it knows the answer is that it has to be presented to the Latter-day Saints and be accepted by common consent as the word of God. And anything outside of the word of God isn't something that a Latter-day Saint can be judged as faithful or unfaithful for having done or not done. And that any Latter-day Saint is welcome to make personal adaptations in their own life as the Spirit dictates when it is above and beyond what the Lord has given to the people. So for instance, if the Word of Wisdom suggests that we eat meat in season, right? And that we abstain from eating meat in large amounts. And if a, and if a Latter-day Saint goes into his room and, and kneels down and he or she prays, and the answer that she gets is that I'm going to eat meat once every 12 and a half days. Like that's a personal adaptation. It doesn't violate section 89 of the Word of Wisdom, but it also is not an adaptation that that person or the church can impose on all Latter-day Saints. It's a personal use of agency. And when we see, like, what are Latter-day Saints bound by? It's a really small amount of things. And outside of that, people are allowed to make adaptations that don't violate the Word of God, but define it perhaps even further in their own personal life. So as a Latter-day Saint, when I say, look, I'm going to hold myself to the canonized revelations of God that I've accepted by common consent, and anything outside of that, I'm going to listen to, I'm going to consider well-thought-out opinions of leaders, I'm going to pray about the things they say, and if it feels true, I'm going to implement it in my life. But on the other hand, if it doesn't feel true, if it runs counter to where the space I hold and the ground I hold, if it feels like speculation, if it feels like the answer isn't true, then I feel perfectly comfortable absolutely dismissing it. It Maybe not throwing it away, but at least setting it way off to the side. And every once in a while, maybe I'll pick it back up and re-examine it. And if all Latter-day Saints could see that, that the, the box of things that we are bound as Latter-day Saints to adhere to as a community, things that we simply cannot be outside of, otherwise otherwise the church is on fair ground saying you're not living up to the word of God that we as a community have accepted by common consent. Therefore, you are on some shaky ground here. That group of things is small. So for instance, we don't have God in the first person voice telling us the Book of Mormon is historical. So why am I bound to have to believe that if that's not where the evidence leads me? And, and, and still be able to be a faithful, believing Latter-day Saint. 
if I don't have a revelation from God telling me that I have to pay my tithing on gross, and the historical context absolutely points to the Lord teaching his Latter-day Saints to pay on surplus early on, and no change has ever been given to me from God, then why am I not allowed to pay tithing on surplus? If I've taken it to the Lord as the brethren have instructed, and the Lord has told me that's an appropriate tithe for me, and I pay it accordingly. And so the moment you say, like, here's what God has said, and these are all the things that people try to say God has said, but it's not, it's not in the first person voice of God. It's not been accepted by common consent. It hasn't been canonized. Then you, someone has to show me where the word is that I can be judged by that. Not, and again, I'm not talking 10 commandments like thou shalt not kill. And if you personally kill somebody, you've broken a rule. I'm talking about these. This is the box. Of And to be in the box of what it is to be a faithful Latter-day Saint, to be one of us, this is, this is the box. What's in that box, based on the rules the church has laid out, is really, really small. And LDS leaders have shown that every time they get outside that box and try to impose some other rule or theological interpretation of what's happened, or historical explanation of what's happened, more times than not, they get it wrong. So I don't trust the church to define, or interpret, or explain, or or give me additional things outside of the Word of God. The church's responsibility is to give me the Word of God when it receives it. The church is not responsible for adding anything to that that God hasn't explicitly said to add and then to hold me accountable or bind me to it. And so when people say, Bill, like, what's your Mormonism? And I lay it out. Like, my Mormonism meshes fine in so such an extent to what is the actual word of God. And it's only those things that leaders have overreached or underreached on that I'm not living in accordance with. Now, I've said a lot of things today, and, and I've tried to choose my words carefully, but I also realize as I'm saying this, like there are, there are exceptions on both sides of this. So I'm simply going to say here at the end, like if you can look at these ideas generally, and when understood generally, this gives us as Latter-day Saints, a whole lot more room that while the box of rigidity of Mormonism gets really small once you understand this, the tent of Mormonism of what ground you can believe and hold becomes much bigger and it leaves a lot more room for a lot more people. It's my hope that we can understand what I said. It's also my hope that if anybody hears something in what I've said today and feels like I've crossed some line or I've said something that is false and violates the word of God within the church, I would welcome correction and I would welcome someone to sit down and give me a chance to explain my words and to show me and to explain to me where I erred, not just that I erred. It's my hope as Latter-day Saints, we can begin to really deeply 
understand the difference and distinguish between the word of God given through prophets whose responsibility and role it is to declare the word of God when given to them and the speculation and private interpretation and overreaching and underreaching of the word of God in the extent to which it happens in the church today. And once we understand the difference between those two, we begin to see there's a lot more room in the church for diversity and a lot less room in the church for the imposing of conformity. May the Lord warm your shoulders in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Let's go.